0: I wonder if hearing this next story will irritate you just as much as it irritated me when it happened. I don't know. It may. It may not. Let's find out. Years before I came to College Station, my practice was in inner-city Dallas, and we served pretty much the same population that I serve now, which is lower socioeconomic, predominantly Hispanic and African American, because that's who we desired to serve. Well, I remember back then, I gave a lecture about IVF-associated congenital anomalies and what to look for during routine ultrasound and level 2 ultrasounds. Well, somebody stood up and said, Uh, Hector, your patients have IVF? Uh, rude, yeah, they do. Just because they're lower socioeconomic doesn't mean they can't find a way. I remember one couple in particular whose entire family, I mean, all brothers and sisters, aunts and nephews, grandparents, extended family members uh, and friends all contributed to this one couple's fund so that they could go through IVF and they conceived. So, yeah, it's across socioeconomic strata. It is more common in those that are higher, middle or upper socioeconomic. But anybody can get IVF if they qualify and, of course, if they can pay for it. Although IVF first came out in 1978, it now makes up 1.6% of all infant births and 18% of all multiple births in the U.S. And although most of these pregnancies are uncomplicated, IVF is associated with some adverse perinatal outcomes mainly caused by the increased risk of prematurity and low birth weight from these pregnancies achieved with IVF. In this episode, we're going to review the SMFM console series number 60, which, appropriately titled, is Management of Pregnancies Resulting from In-Vitro Fertilization. This is also on ABOG's maintenance of certification list from February 2023. So we're going to learn something about taking care of pregnancies after IVF And we're going to knock out some info that's on the ABOG MOC quiz for this article. Ready? Let's cover management of pregnancies resulting from IVF. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practice because medicine moves real fast. This is Clinical Pearls. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. Because this episode does cover an article from the MOC list from February 2023, whenever you hear this phrase, and you may want to remember this, that may be a clue that it's on the MOC-associated quiz. I remember when IVF was called test tube babies. No, I'm not like 70 years old, all right? I'm way, way younger, trust me. And put in another way in there. Way, way, way younger. But I do remember when it was called test two babies. And it's a great thing. Thankfully IVF is out there because it's given a lot of patients with otherwise difficult to treat infertility hope. I mean the ability, the desire to have children, such a strong natural human desire that before this was a thing. It's like, well, sorry, I mean if it happens, it happens but now some patients can qualify and do get help with IVF. But as we mentioned before, it is tied to some perinatal adverse issues. And it's not just adverse issues for the kid. I mean, you know that. It also has some adverse issues for the mom. You may want to remember this. Recent studies and meta-analyses have demonstrated that pregnancies achieved with IVF carry a doubling in the risk for severe maternal morbidity even after controlling for maternal age, parity, and comorbid conditions. And I've said this in other podcasts in the past, man, I mean, can't you just win? I mean, on the one hand, these poor patients that have infertility, they've struggled, it's very much a life stressor, they finally conceive and get pregnant with IVF, and then we have to sit them down like, all right, great, you're pregnant, now let's talk about some adverse issues that both you and your child can have. Can't you just win without any kind of restrictions? Well, I guess we have to take the cons with all of the potential pros. Well, the reason that there's these adverse maternal issues with IVF are kind of hard to figure out because it's very difficult to figure out the original influence of factors for an infertility. Like, was it the endometriosis? Was there uh, insulin resistance? Was it obesity? So was it the condition itself Or did these adverse issues come from some side effect of the procedure itself? Y'all get that, right? It's almost impossible to figure out if these adverse issues are infertility factor-based or IVF factor-based. So we all kind of group them together as pregnancies after IVF, knowing that it's hard to figure out which one caused what. The truth is, as stated in this console series report, it is impossible to separate the individual factors affecting these risks for adverse outcomes in these pregnancies from those from the actual procedure itself, which makes it very difficult to try to reduce the risk from IVF if we don't know which risk actually came from the IVF itself. Nonetheless, there are some guidelines, and that's the reason we're doing this episode. This whole dual influence on adverse outcomes in these pregnancies is perfectly illustrated with the whole topic of genetic conditions, okay? Because this data is kind of all over the place. It does not seem that the IVF procedure itself leads to a higher prevalence of chromosomal anomalies when compared to naturally occurring pregnancies. However, there are other factors that definitely do play a role in the increased risk for chromosomal anomalies in these pregnancies. So the first question is, do pregnancies after IVF have a high rate of genetic or chromosomal anomalies? The answer is, of course, yeah. But how much of that is the IVF procedure itself and how much are the other factors that went into getting IVF, how much they are to blame is very hard to figure out. I mean, there are personal factors that influence the rate of chromosomal abnormalities like pregnancy at an older age. Even PCOS has been linked to adverse uh, genetic conditions in future pregnancies. Severe male or female factor infertility have also been associated with that higher risk for chromosomal anomalies. But not all art is the same. No, not art, like with a paintbrush art. I mean, assisted reproductive technologies. Because although IVF as a procedure does not seem to be linked to increased rate of genetic conditions by itself, that's not the case with ICSI. That's Intrasetoplasmic Sperm Injection, another form of assisted reproductive technology. There are studies that have shown a significantly increased rate of de novo chromosomal abnormalities in pregnancies achieved with ICSI compared with the reference group of naturally occurring pregnancies. So while IVF may not be causative in the genetic realm, ICSI may be. But this whole topic of genetic abnormalities after IVF or assisted reproductive technologies is deeper than just de novo genetic changes because it's, it really is much deeper than that because there's a higher frequency of even epigenetic changes like imprinting syndromes. Imprinting syndromes are thought to occur more frequently in these offsprings of subfertile parents, including those undergoing IVF. There's increased rates of Beckman-Wiedelman syndrome, Angelman, or Prader-Willi syndrome. There's also a higher risk of Russell-Silver syndrome that's been reported in case control series. And you may want to remember this. To give these associations true numbers, a recent meta-analysis yielded estimates of specific associations between ART procedures and these imprinting syndromes. For example, for Beckman-Wiedelman syndrome, or BWS, that odds ratio is 5.8. You may want to remember, 5.8. And for things like Russell-Silver syndrome, the odds ratio is 11.3. For Angelman, 4.7. And for Prater-Willi syndrome, the odds ratio is 2.2. These are all significant. It's because of these issues that SMFM and ACOG recommend genetic counseling be offered to all patients undergoing or who have undergone IVF with or without ICSI. A part of these genetic discussions are offering pre-implantation genetic testing, or PGT. There's actually three types of PGT. There's pre-implantation genetic testing for aneuploidy, otherwise known as PGTA, pre-implantation genetic testing for monogenic disorders, or PGTM, and pre-implantation genetic testing for structural rearrangements. Yeah, you guessed it. That's pgt SR for structural rearrangements. Just as an example, let's do PGTM. Remember, that's pre implantation genetic testing for monogenetic disorders. You may want to remember this. PGTM is used to diagnose monogenetic disorders most commonly found in couples where the offspring has already been affected by a single gene disorder like cystic fibrosis. Or it can also be offered for couples who have undergone carrier screening and one or both of them have been found to be positive for a genetic disease that's single gene or monogenetic. Less frequent indications for PGTM are a desire to select a child who is HLA compatible with a sibling for stem cell therapy or sex selection in cases of a sex-linked disorder like Duchenne muscular dystrophy or selection of embryos unaffected by late-onset autosomal dominant disorders like Huntington disease. This is in the presence of a positive family history. Oh, and here's a clinical pearl as an aside. Don't rest on the reassurance or on the finding just of PGT testing, because regardless of whether that was done, it's still recommended that all patients who achieve pregnancy with IVF, either with or without ICSI, be offered the options of prenatal genetic screening and or diagnostic testing either by chorionic villi sampling or amniocentesis. Oh, and since we mentioned genetic screening, we got to talk about cell free DNA. There are studies that have shown a lower fetal fraction in pregnancies achieved with IVF in cell free DNA tests. This lower fetal fraction leads to higher rates of failed cell-free DNA results compared with naturally occurring pregnancies. However, IVF itself does not appear to be a risk factor for failed results on repeat cell-free DNA testing, in other words, a second draw. This is a little deviation from using cell-free DNA in the general population. Remember, if you get a low fetal fraction in the general population, in other words, not an IVF pregnancy, it's not recommended to do a repeat cell-free DNA because you can just delay final diagnosis of a true condition so you're supposed to just progress to something else although some people do order it kind of off-label if you will but for those pregnancies that happen after IVF because it's a known issue they likely have smaller placental mass so you can have less cell-free DNA then it's it's okay it's accepted to do a second draw in these cases because there's an overall success rate of around 53 percent on repeat draw. To get started, visit plushcare.com weightloss. That's plushcare.com weightloss. Now that we've covered the genetic issues, let's talk about congenital anomalies. Meta-analyses do demonstrate an association between IVF with or without ICSI and congenital malformations. But like we talked about earlier in the podcast, it's difficult to know if that's because of the infertility itself or the actual procedure itself. When talking about congenital anomalies, remember that those rates are given per thousand, okay? So when we're talking about pregnancies after IVF, it's IVF with or without ICSI as one group compared to naturally occurring pregnancies. Well, the organ system with most anomalies actually is musculoskeletal system. Weird, right? In naturally occurring pregnancies, musculoskeletal anomalies happen about eight per thousand. But after IVF with or without ICSI, that number goes up to 11 per thousand, but the odds ratio is actually 6.7 up to 18. So without fail, the organ system most likely affected is one that you probably wouldn't think about in its musculoskeletal at 11 per thousand. Nonetheless, a detailed obstetrical ultrasound exam is recommended in these pregnancies around 18 to 22 weeks. This was exactly the topic that I was presenting that I talked about in this story during the intro because there is a higher chance of congenital heart disease in IVF pregnancies and that's with or without ICSI. So it's important to not just do a detailed anatomical survey, but specifically to look at the heart. Yeah, fetal echo is recommended to pregnancies achieved with IVF with or without ICSI. Oh, and talking about ultrasounds and detailed surveys of the child, don't forget about the detailed ultrasound survey of the placenta because these placentas are not immune to issues either. Pregnancies achieved with IVF are associated with higher rates for abnormal placental shape like bilobed placentas or accessory placental lobes when compared to naturally occurring pregnancies. Pregnancies achieved with artificial reproductive technologies also have higher rates of placenta previa, higher rates of having marginal or filamentous cord insertion, and they even have higher rates of vasoprevia. And oh my goodness, as if that wasn't enough, remember that placenta accreta spectrum or PAS is also more common following IVF. We recently did a podcast on placenta accreta spectrum, and remember that IVF is on that list as a risk factor for having this. All to say, when you're doing the anatomical survey for the child, it's important to make a careful evaluation, a careful exam of the placenta location, placental shape, and cord insertion site, and also to make sure that there's no evidence of previa. so be sure to click on that Doppler switch to make sure that there's no abnormal vessels by the internal cervical os. Before we leave this topic of the placenta, here's how SMFM puts it. Quote, Targeted screening via transvaginal ultrasound should be considered in all pregnancies achieved with IVF with vilamentous cord insertion, suctionate or bilobed placentas, or resolved placenta previa to rule out previa on the basis of this potentially catastrophic diagnosis. Now let's talk about altered fetal growth in the third trimester because there is an increased risk for SGA infants in even singleton pregnancies achieved with IVF. And you may want to remember this. There's a higher risk for SGA babies in pregnancies achieved with IVF with or without ICSI from fresh cycles more than with frozen cycles. In other words, in this case, frozen cycles seems to be better. Which is odd because if you remember when we talked about placenta accreta spectrum disorders, there tended to be a higher rate of PAS with cryopreserved embryos, in other words, frozen embryos. But in terms of fetal growth, it's just the opposite. It seems that fresh cycles have the higher risk of SGA infants. Weird, right? Remember this. A retrospective cohort study reported the estimated fetal weight for these pregnancies achieved with IVF, either with or without ICSI, decelerated in the third trimester when those embryos were fresh compared with frozen embryos. In other words, frozen embryos did not seem to have this altered fetal growth. Nonetheless, the recommendation to track fetal growth is not limited to just fresh embryos. SMFM states that an assessment of fetal growth should be performed in the third trimester for all pregnancies achieved with IVF. However, serial growth ultrasounds are actually not recommended just for the sole indication that they were IVF. In other words, you don't have to repeat it every four or six weeks, just get one sometime in the third trimester, and that's the catch when is actually not dictated, so we tend to get one anywhere between 34 to 36 weeks since this altered fetal growth tends to be late near term. Alright podcast family, as we get to the end of this episode, let's just wrap up the final three recommendations. Remember that IVF is a moderate risk factor for preeclampsia, and it's on the moderate risk factor list for prophylaxis with low-dose aspirin. But if IVF is the only indication for preeclampsia, then low-dose aspirin doesn't qualify. Of course, these patients tend to have other comorbid conditions, so they likely have one other either high-risk factor or one other moderate-risk factor. But if IVF is their only issue, then low-dose aspirin doesn't apply. But if there is an additional either one high-risk factor or just an additional moderate-risk factor, then low-dose aspirin is recommended. The second final to the end recommendation is that because of the increased risk for stillbirth, SMFM does recommend weekly antenatal fetal surveillance, but this should begin late near term because that's when these things happen. So beginning at 36 weeks of gestation in all pregnancies that were achieved with IVF, antenatal fetal surveillance is recommended. And as a final recommendation, because there's no specific study looking at the best time to deliver these pregnancies, we default to the general data from the ARRIVE trial. Remember, these pregnancies all have great gestational dating because you know exactly when they got pregnant. Because you helped with that. So in light of any further study that says D should be delivered by extra gestational weeks, we default to the ARRIVE trial that says, hey, offer an induction of labor at 39 weeks, knowing that it's shared decision-making and that the risk of stillbirth does increase with later gestations. 39-week induction can be offered, although it's not mandatory in these pregnancies. All right, podcast family, that brings us to our wrap. We have covered the management of pregnancies after IVF with or without ICSI. Remember, this is part of the ABOG maintenance of certification article list from February, 2023. As always, we're super thankful for you. We're glad that you're part of our podcast family and we'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls.